Will NHS services be whittled down? I'm Helen MacDonald, Analysis Editor of the BNJ, and in this podcast, I'm joined by Alison Pollock, Professor of Global Health, and Peter Roderick, a Barrister and Senior Research Fellow, both at Queen Mary University of London. They join me to argue that through various mechanisms in the Health and Social Care Act, the NHS in England is on a course to be turned into a smaller core service, and that for full healthcare coverage, we may have to turn to commercial medicine. So Alison, could you start by telling us, um, for those who are less familiar with this area, broadly speaking, what the Health and Social Care Act was and what it did? Okay, so the Health and Social Care Act was brought in in 2012. In effect, it actually abolished the NHS as we know it. So it took away the duty to secure and provide comprehensive health care, the duty on the minister to do that. And instead, it brought in new um, market structures, very different from the old structures. And the ones that we are most familiar with are the NHS uh, England, which is actually the NHS commissioning board, and Monitor. Monitor is an economic regulator. And it gave those new structures the power to create a market in health services and also a market in funding. Because of the goal of this government is to bring in a mixed funding system and to force more and more people to pay for their own care. But in order to do this, the government needs to reduce public provision to a rump or a basic package of care. Um. And some of the other bodies or um, phrases that people may not be familiar with when they read this article or are listening to us is who Monitor are. Can you say briefly who they Uh, are? Monitor is the economic regulator for the NHS. That's the best way of thinking about it, uh, as in a market um, uh, industry. Okay. And um, can you tell us what a foundation trust is? Hospitals and community services were formally integrated into health authorities. They've become, in effect, um, corporate bodies, um, corporate entities or firms. And so hospitals are now established as trusts. um, And when they become foundation trusts, they've been given more powers, um, more more independent powers, including the power to raise up to 49% of their income from private patients. And so how have these changes in the Act led to the concerns that you've, you've developed? Well, what's happened here is that the, the licensing system that was brought in by the Act, um, under, that, under those licences, Monitor has made the Foundation Trusts have to provide the services that they used to provide um, before the Act came in, but only up until April 2016. And between now and then, over the next 18 months, and it's been going on for about a year or so um, before now, um, they've told commissioners to have a look at this list of services, and monitors said that they expect those services to reduce. And the basis upon which they've asked them to do that is to imagine that the 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 foundation trust will become bankrupt basically won't be able will be in financial difficulty whether it is or it is not uh, and on that basis what would be the minimum level of services that would have to be provided in the event of the financial uh, distress uh, um, and then and then new license conditions will then be uh, implemented which will have according to monitor's expectation a reduced list of services and how has that been playing out so far? Have we heard um, commissioners raising concerns about this or talking about how they're going to whittle down this list? Uh, 
one of the problems is that foundation trusts increasingly are very untransparent in what they're publishing and what's available, even their accounts. Many of, the, many of the foundation trusts are not publishing their full accounts, so it's very difficult to know exactly what's happening. But we, know, we do know that foundation trusts are getting into increasingly um, serious financial difficulties, so they're already beginning to cut huge swathes of services, and indeed um, within the trusts are beginning to outsource services, privatise them, such as um, physiotherapy, occupational health therapy. So these um, reductions are, also, are already happening, and they're also happening through another mechanism, which is a mechanism of mergers. Trust mergers are ongoing, and trust mergers inevitably mean reductions in closures, often of accident in the emergency departments, but also of other departments and facilities. And do we get a sense amongst the foundation trusts of what services they they see as core? Well, what's very interesting is that um, foundation trusts often are almost some some of them moving into negotiated agreements. So in London, there are very good examples of this, where they're beginning to carve up what services they will actually provide, not taking into account the needs of the population or the planning, but some hospitals are saying, well, we'll specialise in cancer care. Uh, other hospitals are saying, well, we'll drop our cancer care and we'll do the um, cardiac uh, the cardiac care. Um, and so they're beginning to carve up these services in order to try and find some way of becoming financially viable and sustainable. But the problem is that's very much a market-orientated approach. It's not a needs-based approach. And many of these carve-ups are not being done in the interests of all of the patients in the area. It's also worth remembering as well that the legal purpose, if you like, or objective of the Foundation Trust is to make most of their money have most of their income from the NHS. So basically, it's the, 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 their fundamental purpose is not defined in terms of needs, it's defined in terms of source of money. And now, of course, they can get 49% of their money from, from private patients. But one of the obstacles, of course, to generating that 49% of um, uh, income from private patients is either patients are unwilling to pay or actually they can't accommodate those patients because they're still providing a lot of NHS services. So in a way, there are some perverse incentives operating to actually um, uh, incentivize foundation trusts actually to diminish and decrease the uh, services that they're providing in order to try and uh, uh, p uh, generate more private patient income. But of course, if you've got to provide NHS services, then that can actually interfere with your desire to generate more private patient income. You know, the whole, if you look at the 2012 Act, and how it was designed over many years it's 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 you know it's a very very clever competent piece of legislation for the idea that's behind it and so of course you can and and, you, and that in when you slowly slowly realize that in my case i'm afraid slowly uh, you then you then see the different mechanisms that can be used given a particular idea of a market health service rather than a public and a health service, service. And, and 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 you know the market and, and and just having a basic package at the as as provided and the rest of it is 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 uh, has to be paid for the the article if you like is highlighting one of the mechanisms within that act for putting in place um, a marketized health service so there seems to be a, a number of ways in which um, services might be picked off or, or whittled down. Do we see any evidence of that happening as yet? Or 
how will we know? What will the signs be that things are changing? Well, it would be interesting for me to see commissioners out there who are feeling pressurised now as a result of monitors' guidance to reduce services. Uh, for local authorities, it would be interesting to see them if they're scrutinising properly and using their powers uh, in relation to, 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 to this scheme. It's the next 18 months that are critical now as to whether commissioners will stand by their legal duty to arrange provision for uh, to meet reasonable requirements not a subset of services and it's really important that they stick to their legal duty for as long as the commissioner provider split is in place and will that be will that be possible for them will the mon- will the money exist for them to be able to do that yes. Ultimately, those are political decisions, but, they, they, but their duty is to look at need. Theirs is not the political decision about the money that's available. And of course, the real concern is that many of the CCGs, the clinical commission groups, don't actually have um, that knowledge and expertise to look at need because those functions have been privatised through the uh, commissioning support units, the CSUs, which are increasingly also being privatised in turn. So actually it's very difficult to know who's actually looking at need and looking at doing any service planning. So it's very difficult to get an overall picture of what's going on and that's partly because the government is not actually um, putting in one central place all the commercial activities, all the contracts, that are uh, um, all the services that have been contracted out. And of course, contracting out is another way of destabilizing foundation trusts and NHS trusts. So when you have huge contracts, like the cancer contract for £700 million or the um, £700 million contract that went to Virgin, what that does is it takes away money from NHS trusts, hospitals and community services, and NHS foundation trusts, and destabilizes them, creating real financial problems, which makes it then easier for Monitor to impose this guidance. What was interesting was that in the 2012 Act, the uh, Parliament passed this, gave, gave Monitor this power to impose conditions to ensure continuity of service. Uh, now, to ordinary people, and indeed I imagine to most MPs, and certainly to me when I first read it, I would have thought, well, that's a good thing, you know, the continuity of service. Uh, but actually what you're now finding is that they're only applying those provisions to a subset of services. They're not providing it to the services that had to be provided up until 20, the 2012 Act. So it's a ki- it's a kind of perversion of the of the of the provision um, that uh, to continue service the continuity of service uh, is being used in this context now to discontinue the services and and, and I cannot believe that uh, uh, MPs realise that that's what they were doing when they were saying oh yes good let's have some powers to continue service yes absolutely and then they're using these powers to discontinue them it's bizarre and they're using these powers to reduce NHS services funded services to a basic package. So what do you think the implications of this are for, for all the various parties using the NHS? What what does this mean for patients? What does it mean for doctors? Um, just day-to-day normal ones going about delivering and using the service? Well, as a patient, I, uh, I, I would be wanting to make sure know that my GPs, for example, are not buckling under, mo- under pressure from Monitor and that they're saying, no, we know what the reasonable requirements of our patients are and we're going to stand up for the patients and to, and to, to, to make sure against Monitor and make sure that the services that we, we need as patients are provided. 
but the implications longer term are quite catastrophic because if this continues, the model uh, that's being imported is very much uh, the model of the US where you have a mixed funding system and you have um, a public-private insurance uh, model with private provisions. And, that, and in the end, that ultimately means denial of care for many millions of people. And that's already beginning to happen, the erosion of care. So actually, what really needs to happen is the restoration and the reinstatement of the NHS. I mean, the Health and Social Care Act is a very destructive piece of legislation. It has, it has destroyed the rights and entitlements that people have to universal health care and they are being eroded day on day day on uh, week on week and so it's absolutely vital the implications for all politicians that, that they actually come to terms with this and any rational politician would see it was in the interest of the public it was the interest of business as well to restore a universal health service so as the as these political conferences have been underway over the over the autumn period what what have people been talking about in terms of these values and the framework of the NHS? Have they been surfacing as ideas? Well, one of the most, um, one, w- as Peter said, w- one of the most worrying aspects is that all the parties think it's coming down, all boiling down to money and income tax. So they do all the surveys that people are prepared to spend more money for health care. Well, that's fine. But as Peter says, if you've actually destroyed the NHS, if you've put in a 457-page act which destroys the NHS as we know it and puts in a whole market structure and undermines all the principles of universality and carefree at the point of delivery, then that's completely beside the point. It's not money that's the issue. It's where that money is going and how it's being spent and what the new structures are doing and what the government's intention is behind that act. And the intention is quite clear. It's to reduce the NHS at best to a rump service, almost nothing, to have it wither away and at the same time to privatise, to open it up, to marketise it to big multinational corporations, including the insurance industry who are waiting in the wings because that is the direction of travel just now. It's a major... Um, privatisation not just of the services but also of the funding that the government has and it's all doing it under the auspices of austerity we can't afford it but of course in 1948 we were totally broke Um, our deficits were much much bigger than they are today as a percentage of GDP Um, and yet um, we're saying we can't afford it of course we can afford it a universal health service is a measure of a decent and just society and we've never needed it more than we've needed it today than we need it today and actually that takes us into the fact that over the last year and a half a group of us have been working with Peter to draft um, uh, a reinstatement bill the the NHS reinstatement bill 2015 tell us a bit about that well, the NHS reinstatement bill has uh, has been drafted in order to uh, re-establish the legal duty on the government to provide the NHS and to abolish the purchaser-provider split, which has basically been happening over about 25 years. Uh, and so the, it's long been established that the costs of a market bureaucracy are very high and that the original founding vision of the, of the National Health Service uh, was slowly withered away in England 
not in Scotland and Wales, but in England um, over over the last 25 years, uh, and then was taken to a new level in the 2012 Act, which removed the duty to provide. Uh, and so the bill is essentially um, re-establishing the National Health Service as a public service as originally intended, and using some of the, uh, the some of the good changes that have happened over time uh, to, to to restore it as, a, as as an accountable public service, which uh, sadly at the moment it isn't. And what's what's the interest been like in in your bill? What's the, what are the steps for it or the way forward? We've well, we've had some we've had some most moving messages from from people, um, loads and loads of them, and the hope now is that people will ask their candidates and MPs in the general election to say that they would support this bill, uh, and um, and that the, the Queen's speech after the general election will include uh, an NHS reinstatement bill. And so at the moment, this bill is out for consultation. So we're consulting with any everyone um, and we really welcome all responses, uh, especially from BMJ readers. Um, and as, at the same time, we've also launched um, last weekend a campaign for the NHS Reinstatement Bill 2015. Um, and we can give the website to you. And ultimately, you said this was about trying to get the politicians interested. Are any of them interested in... Yes. Yes, we've yes, all well. We've, we've had already had support from uh, from a Labour candidate, uh, from the Green Party, uh, from the NH National uh, Health Alliance Party, a sitting MP um, in Birmingham last uh, last night. So, yeah. Yeah. So, so there are a lot of people. It's not the you know the, the, we, we we don't give up on all the politicians. Yeah. So, but it's it's essential that people bring pressure to bear as in the Scottish referendum, but people must bring pressure to bear upon their politicians. Um, and one of the tragedies is that all around the country, as you well know, um, uh, service, hospital services are closing, so are community services. People are out demonstrating, people are out marching, but there's very little media reporting of actually what's going on and the scale. And it's extraordinary, the public mobilization and the public anxiety about what's happening to their NHS, but also the feeling of powerlessness. So this is why we felt it was very important not just to have a campaign around pledges, but a campaign to, to have a proper piece of legislation that we could actually draft legislation that we could um, tie politicians to. That was Alison Pollock and Peter Roderick discussing why they think the NHS in England is on a path to privatisation. Their analysis article, A Wolf in Sheep's Clothing, How Monitor is Using Licensing Powers to Reduce Hospital and Community Services, is now available on the BMJ's website, where you can also find links to the website that Alison mentioned.